Welcome to Shut Up and Wrestle, an old school wrestling podcast about good conversations and great stories. I am your host, Brian R. Solomon, and this week it's episode number 82, and it's going to be a deep dive wrestling history episode with my guest, wrestling historian and blogger and podcaster, Carl Stern, known to some as Dragon King Carl. So stay tuned for that. Before we get to the conversation at hand, a few items that I wanted to run down for you. First of all, I want to mention, and I mentioned this a couple times before at the back end of the show, but I also wanted to make a mention of it right here at the top, that I have a a limited number remaining of signed copies of two of my books, Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original chic that a lot of people have been talking about. And my newest book, actually, which is not wrestling-related, called Superheroes, The History of a Pop Culture Phenomenon from Ant-Man to Zorro. I happen to have a bunch of these left over from some appearances that I've done recently that I still have. And if anybody would like to acquire one of these signed books, please do reach out to me. You can get me through my email address, Solomon at yahoo.com, or... You can get a hold of me on Facebook through the Facebook group Shut Up and Wrestle with Brian R. Solomon or on Twitter or Instagram at Brian R. Solomon. You'll find me there. Reach out. If you'd like one, we can talk about it and maybe we can make that happen for you. So I just wanted to put that out there. And speaking of book signing appearances, I wanted to say that as this episode drops coming up this weekend, not sure when you're listening to this, it may have already passed, in which case I apologize. But Saturday, August 26th, I will be at the third annual International Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame inductions in Albany, New York at the MVP Arena. And during the day, there's going to be a fan fest where I will be signing and selling copies of Blood and Fire. So if you're planning to attend the IPWHF ceremonies, come on down, come to the table, say hi, maybe buy a book. Maybe just say hi. It'll be great to see you. It's always great to hear from readers and listeners. So that is what is coming up on my agenda. And I wanted to give a a quick update on the next book, Irresistible Force, The Life and Times of Gorilla Monsoon. I am now coming out of the interview phase of the book, and I'm almost done. I'm, I'm being a little ambitious there and optimistic, but I'm approaching the end of the uh transcription phase of getting all these interviews down into text form. And just to give you an idea of some of the people that I have interviewed for this book, as I now look at a comprehensive list of all of them, I may do a couple more stragglers here and there, but this is what I've got under my belt for this book. I've got interviews with Kevin Sullivan, Ross Hart, also his brother, you may have heard of him, Bret Hart, 
Holly Gilsenberg, the daughter of Willie Gilsenberg, Ken Patera, Jimmy Corderas, Tony Gurria, Jim Cornette, Gino Brito, Jerry Briscoe, Bill Apter, Kevin Kelly, Gary Michael Capetta, Mario Savoldi, Davey O'Hannon, Hugo Savinovich, Jessica Solt, daughter of Bobby the Brain Heenan, the son of Ilio DiPaolo, let's see, uh, historian Tom Burke, uh, lots of others here, but I do not, Johnny Rods, I don't want to take the entire uh, hour telling you this, Tony Chimmel, just lots of great interviews for the book as I look up and down the list, people providing their insights to Irresistible Force, The Life and Times of Gorilla Monsoon, and I'll continue to keep you updated on the progress of that book. But right now, I want to take you to this conversation that I had with Carl Stern. Now, for those of you like me who really enjoy the the really far back history, the early history of the pro wrestling industry, I'm talking late 19th century, early 20th century, Carl is your man, and he really knows his stuff. And we got to talk about a lot of things that I don't get enough of an opportunity to talk about on this show or honestly anywhere else. So I hope that you get as much of a kick out of this as I did. And I'm going to take you to this unique conversation right now. Okay, so it's my pleasure this week on Shut Up and Wrestle to welcome somebody whose work I've been admiring for a very long time, going back to when I worked for WWE. We'll talk about that. This might be kind of a mutual admiration society. We'll see. But he he's one of the most knowledgeable wrestling historians that I know of, and he's somebody that is equally able to, to talk about stuff from virtually any era, which I really respect, and I love having people on here that have written about and have researched the, the really early history of the pro wrestling business. And he's one of those people. Um, he, his work you have seen, if you are a subscriber to figure four weekly online or the observer online, his podcasts are a part of their offerings. So you, you certainly have seen his work on there. He also is the proprietor of the, when it was cool.com website, specializing in all kinds of pop culture and wrestling nostalgia, not just wrestling. He's often known as Dragon King Carl. His parents named him Carl Stern. Carl, welcome to Shut Up and Wrestle. Ryan, thank you very much for having me here. It's, it's an honor to be on your your show, and I, I love any time. I mean, especially when you have people that focus on you know very specific aspects of wrestling history because there's so much – um, uh, I'm a, I mean, I'm just, I'm a wrestling geek. I'm a re I like the nuts and bolts of it. I like getting into the deep detail of things. Uh, you know, you've, you've done uh, multiple books. You've got another one coming out. I mean, that's the stuff that I like to really dig into. I, it's, you can go to Wikipedia to find out the, the basic story. I want to know everything there is to know about, you know, every, I want to go to the sources. I want to dig through all that stuff. And so when I'm looking for wrestling history stuff, the surface just doesn't do for me. I mean, it's uh, again, that's, I'm a fan and uh, I've been a fan since um, I'm 52 years old, about to, in fact, this weekend, I turned 52 years old. And for 50 years of that, I've probably been a wrestling fan. And uh, 
So I love it, I, but I want to know more. I want to know the, the, the deep details of things, and that's why I research. Uh, I've often been called, and usually, and I understand the, the title of historian. I think more accurately, I would define myself as a chronicler uh, because the knowledge comes from other people, and maybe it even comes from the people themselves. Uh, it comes from people like you. It comes from people that write books, do podcasts. Uh, it comes from other places. And, and what I like to do and what I've kind of made my website when it was cool be is a repository for that information, to, a place to put it all, present it. There was a great quote, and I love this, uh, a guy who there were back years ago, book hasn't been in print in many, many years. Uh, two guys named Royal Duncan and Gary Will wrote oh, yes. a book. <laughs> yes, the wrestling his the wrestling title histories book. And it was just amazing because pre-internet, this is the you know, this is the first time I, I even heard about some of these, you know, especially pioneer era stuff. And uh, so I'm really digging into that. And, and I think it was Royal Duncan that said, there is no history if no one chronicles it. And that's true because we don't, you wouldn't know it. It's lost. And so that's just ever since I read that by him, I was like, you know, that's what I want to do. These people know these things. Let's put it together some way, some how that, you know, be it in audio form, be it in a website form, be it book form, whatever. Let's put some stuff together where people can access it and make it known. And then I tell you and you tell somebody else and they tell somebody else, they find it interesting. And then suddenly a lot of people know and it influences things. And that's how you keep history alive. Yeah. And, and that book, boy, when you mentioned the name of that book, that got me because that book was a huge eye opener for me. The, the, the title history's book. And, you know, it was sort of made a little bit obsolete by the Internet when the Internet came along. Like, I used to have it. I don't have it anymore because there's sites like uh, the great Hisa and the stuff that he does, which is so comprehensive, among others. And but at the time and it came out, I guess, I mean, I don't know. I don't remember exactly when it came out, but I know when I got it and it was just a couple years before the Internet exploded in like the mid 90s. And that was wow. That was like one of those mind expanding moments for for me as a kid but i wanted to give some background we talked about this before we started here before we started recording but i want to i want to just talk about how you know i first came across your work as i told you before when i worked for wwe we when we were working on wwe magazine and especially raw magazine we were trying to do more historical pieces and which they were never really that big on you know and so we were looking for research and materials that we could use and this is 20 years ago so it was, a, it was a lot harder not even the internet was as reliable even though it was around and that's when we started coming across your stuff and we had it i mean i managed sort of like the library of the department with all the reference books which i took with me by the way when i left sorry everybody but we had some of your stuff in there and like like the the, the timelines of wrestling history that you did that would just be go-to stuff when we were writing about this kind of thing. Like I did a four-part history in SmackDown magazine of just the whole history of professional wrestling business, which I had to fight like crazy to do. Like I remember Shane McMahon being like, I don't want, you know, I don't think my dad would like us to use the word professional wrestling, you know? And I'm like, Oh my God, I got my work cut out for me here. But your book, I, your books, your 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 publications 
were crucial in doing that and a lot of other things. And then I rediscovered you, like I was saying, on the Observer website and the things that you're doing now, like the history of wrestling at Madison Square Garden, which is a favorite subject of mine because I have that old, I'm sure you have it, the Scott Teal book from years ago, Absolutely. which is like the Bible, right? Absolutely. And uh, that's that's kind of the template of, of which uh, that is built from. The The timeline stuff is still something I, I work on today. It's, it's housed on my website uh, when it was cool and a zone I call the ultimate history of wrestling, and I just keep adding to it. I mean, it's, it's a never-ending project. You're never going to ultimately chronicle the whole thing, but still, uh, whenever I get, uh, you know, something in dealing with wrestling history, I look and see if, well, do I have this in there? Do I not have it in there? And uh, put it in there because, again, the idea is to chronicle it. And one of my favorite, like, it's – and I, and I hate that it's no more popular than it is among just your average wrestling fan, but I love, in fact, I'm doing a podcast series on it now, is the pioneer era of wrestling. And I define the pioneer era of wrestling as anything pre-1900, pre-Frank Gotch, okay? You know, Frank Gotch comes along around the turn of the 1800s, 1900, uh, around 1900, so a little bit before that. And I mean, he completely changes wrestling and everything about it. He becomes the biggest cultural wrestling star, you know, that whole era, but he didn't just appear in a vacuum. There was right. wrestling before him. And I'm, I was fascinated by that. Weirdly enough, it was from an old after magazine that I even become interested in that because hmm. you think that, well, you know, the, uh, the Western family of magazines, they never covered anything like that, but, uh, but weirdly, they back and I don't even remember when it was sometime during the mid 1980s, they did like an issue of inside wrestling of the wrestler where they did this fantasy all time wrestling card thing. It's like, you know, what if the ultimate warrior wrestled, you know, uh, superstar Billy Graham or something, whatever the deal was. Right. And uh, there was a name on there I didn't recognize. And uh, they, it was a uh, Stanislaus Zabisco. And I'm like, who, who is that? Is that Larry's brother? You know what? I'm a right, kid. Right, what, right. Who is this? So I'm like, I, I always wondered like, okay, well, the, you know, there's something more. There's something before. So what's before? So I start looking back and, and just finally working further and further and further back. And then when I get into the, you know, the civil war, post-civil war era, I'm like, wow. I mean, it's like, this is a whole this is insanely interesting because this is where you, what made me generate this thought was you talking about, you know, Shane McMahon has said, you know, pro wrestling, I don't know. Eh. What is wrestling really? Sport? No, not really. Kind of, but not really. I, sports entertainment. I mean, it's come to mean something now. It's kind of become sort of a, you know, a meme of a, of a term. And, so what is it? It's this very interesting thing. It's this very, it's, it's this blend of early on vaudeville and opera and sport. And it actually started. And you know, people often ask, you know, how did wrestling become when did it, it used to be banned back in the back when Abraham Lincoln was doing it, it was all real, right? It's all a shoot. Not when, no, it's not from literally day one, 
it was about gambling. It was about gambling. You introduce gambling into anything and you get problems. You get, you get shenanigans. (laughs) You get, you introduce gambling into horse racing. You get cheating. You introduce gambling into baseball. You get cheating. You introduce gambling into wrestling and there's an opportunity to make money because you and I can, um, see where the betting lines are going and we can change the winner and we can bet on who, and we can take this show town to town. Now, uh, you know, we can build you up real big and get all the money coming your way. And now we can change the winner and uh, split the money between us and go town to town and, and, and make a killing. So from the answer to when did wrestling become work literally day one, now it wasn't all work. There were shoots and stuff going on. Of course, back in the pioneer days, you would get outside of, you know, like the, the famous story with Abraham Lincoln and Jack Armstrong, you know, out in front of Offit's store. And, you know, it's pioneer era scuffling, just two two guys out wrestling in the, you know, and their friends are betting on it and stuff. And a lot of that stuff was real for sure. But it didn't take long to figure out a con can be had from this. And, and it's very interesting to me, the evolution of the, of the whole thing, how that, how that two pioneers out in the, out in the uh, American frontier, how that ends up being, you know, 20,000 people at Madison Square Garden and people like Superstar Graham and The Rock and Steve Austin, Ric Flair, and it's how it becomes that. And there is a lineal progression of that. And I, th- I find that just super interesting. I think it's one of the most interesting sports to follow. I mean, football is has always been basically football. The gear may have changed, but it's always been the same. Baseball, basketball, the same. Professional wrestling, what it is today looks nothing like what it was when William Muldoon was doing it. But it's the but it is, but it's not. And I I find that super fascinating. So what's interesting to me about that is you know the way I've always looked at it because I've come to a lot of those conclusions too when you go really back into the history of it is that what what wrestling really was in those early days was just uh, like today you know it's entertainment we acknowledge it as entertainment and honestly even though they were trying to work the fans it was being acknowledged as entertainment way before that especially inside the business but i think if you go back to that pioneer era like you described it i feel like what you're really dealing with is just a crooked sport like that's how it started, really. And, but be, and I say that because boxing had a lot of that. Other sports had a lot of that. Boxing had a lot of fixes, a lot of fake fights. They were very common. Boxing and wrestling went on these two separate trajectories where like they worked really, really hard to clean up boxing. I'm not saying they did it 100%, but they worked really hard to do that, get the gangsters out of it, to get the gambling out of it, to create more rules so people weren't killing each other and everything. But wrestling went the completely other way, where they just leaned into the the fixed aspect of things and just turned it into a show. Where I mean, like that could have very easily happened with boxing too, but it didn't. Like that's always the way I I kind of looked at it in those days. Like I don't, I, like in the I, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. If you're going back to the 19th century, I'm thinking the, my understanding of it is that the public at large, at least believed that what they were seeing were genuine sporting competitions. Am I wrong to think that? Sort of. Uh, you're <laughs> not you're, you're you're not wrong. It's honestly not from everything I read from the newspapers, 
there were as early as, I mean, for sure in 1877, there was a big article about it. Prior to that, as far back as the 1850s, I regularly find mentions where the crowd was chanting fake Hmm. at at the match. So I think that indicates that, like you said, they were thought they were seeing a dirty match. They thought they were seeing one that was being thrown. They weren't necessarily sure of what the, like there's this big underlying con game going on that there was, but they didn't know that part of it, but they were pretty sure what they were seeing wasn't on the level. And the newspapers were calling it out just right and left. There was a big expose by one of the newspapers in the 1870s that was basically said, this is, this is, nonsense like you're all being swindled out of your money yeah i think uh, the sports a- writers i think the sports writers were smart to it ahead of the general public because they were so close to it uh to the to the in- they were closer to the inner workings of it i think than the general public was so it just became like a process of gradually educating people as to what they're watching like by the time you get to the early 20th century by the time you get even to like the 30s you know, even though wrestling has devoted fans, many of whom believe it, the general public did not by that point. I mean, they understood wrestling is is like a circus. It's like a show. You know, it's not like, you know, it already had that reputation even that far back. I just didn't know how far back people were that clued in. You know what I mean? There was a wrestler, a pioneer wrestler named Jack Kartik. And I've recently been doing some research on him. And, and he was one of the earlier pioneer wrestlers. I mean, I'm talking about civil war to just barely post civil war. And he goes on after his like wrestling career ends to being in promoting and uh, running one of the combines and, and, and stuff. And he's one of the, the guys that ends up being tied into what you, you may have heard about a group called the Maybray gang. And the Maybray gang was involved in all sorts of sports fixing, including uh, horse racing and and uh, it, like billiards and, and anything that could be gambled on. They were involved in, in fixing and they ended up getting busted by the federal government because in the early days of the post office, they were using the uh, post office to send uh, like, say, you know, send a letter to say, well, you know, Evan Strangler Lewis needs to go over so and so. And so they were they were committing wire fraud and they were busted for that. In fact, Jack Karkeek, pioneer wrestling champion and, and very well-known guy ends up spending two years in prison for uh, racketeering basically. And this is the 1800s <laughs> and the papers were all, I mean, they knew the, the gig. Here's this guy who was a wrestler suspect some of his matches weren't legit. He's around all these other matches that aren't legit. They bust this Mayberry gang. He's right in the middle of it. So, you know, the, the press certainly knew or had a great idea, but people, uh, the, does the general public at large, are they like kayfabed out like they are, you know, in, in, in more modern times, they're still betting a lot of money on it. They're still getting right. Like, why would you, so some of them, yeah. Yeah, that's what I mean. Like the betting to me is a tip off of that. Like, why would you bet money? Although <laughs> it's funny saying that nowadays that we have now that now the betting companies are getting in on wrestling. It's insane. But but I mean, in those days, why would you bet on the outcome of something that 
you thought was fixed unless I've just answered my question. I don't know. Maybe they did know. And maybe the, maybe they were betting the same way that that they're trying to get people to bet on WWE and things today. I don't know. You know, but to well, me, like think- my initial reaction is if I'm putting my money on something like I must think it's real. Otherwise, why would I bet on it? Well, you've just answered the question to why <laughs> kayfabe existed. Let's convince you that it is. Let's let's act, man. We're, we're you know we're not going to be friends out in public. We're going to act like you know we're going to we're going to pose our test out. We're going to make you think it's real. That's why we're that you know that's how kayfabe really developed. It's because yeah, everybody had a sneaky suspicion something was going on. Well, let's make them believe otherwise. Right. Uh, you know, some of that stuff is not real, but ours is real. Brian and I, our match is going to be real. I'll tell yeah. you what, I can't stand that guy. I'm going to get him. You better bet money on me because, you know, he can't take me. And then, lo and behold, I lose. What's that, all, what's that all about, you know? Well, in a different town, it may be done differently, but, you know, uh, we got to make them believe. And Steve Steve Yoey wrote something on this subject once that really um, helped to crystallize a lot of it for me, which is, like, when you get to that era – like I said, in the 20s and 30s, when it starts to really evolve into, like you could watch matches from that and you can tell you're watching a worked match. Like like the one thing about the old school matches, which there's not a lot of video footage of it out there at all, but when you watch a, a really old match, like, like one of the oldest matches that you can watch is the Joe Stecker Earl Caddick match at the Garden, even though there are now older matches on tape than that. But when you watch it, Unless you're like some type of an MMA expert or something, you can't really tell watching it. It looks pretty damn legit. But by the time you get to the 30s, you can really you can you you watch it and you go, okay, they're selling, they're they're coming off the ropes, you know, they're 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 slamming. You could see the cooperation. Steve Yoey wrote that one of the reasons that they leaned into that was specifically because they were getting in trouble for fraud for getting people to bet on the matches. So they thought, well, okay, if we can't have people, we don't want people betting on these matches anymore. We're going to wind up in prison. So if we make it look obviously like to any intelligent person that that's, you know, you can see that this is a show, it will discourage people from betting on it. And therefore we won't run into that problem anymore. Like that it wasn't the only reason, but that that was one of, one of the reasons that they started to make it look more obviously like a, you know, a performance. And the, and the business model transforms to match this too, because it, it starts really in the Frank Ed Strangler Lewis is kind of the delineation of what you just talked about. He is the common denominator between that Stecker Caddick era and what the more entertainment oriented stuff that came next with like the gold dust trio, which he was a, a part and, and it, the, the money-making opportunity then changed from gambling to uh, spectator sport. Uh, Now, they'd always sold tickets before, and there were even large crowds back in the 1800s, but it became more the business model of how the individual wrestler was going to make some money was to transition it into a spectator sport, as we know nowadays. I mean, you know, look at all the giant crowds we've had post that time. And, and that's kind of how things break up into a, a territorial system. You have these different business offices and, uh, it's no longer just a touring combine of a certain number of wrestlers. It's we're sitting up offices and we're rotating our, our talent around and they're getting paid a certain, uh, you know, fee and whatever, based on their drawing power, not necessarily what 
we can work out amongst ourselves to, to fleece people in side bets and stuff. So it's a, it's a very interesting evolution you, you have there uh, in the 30s and 40s, especially, 30s especially. And they also started, and this isn't just for wrestling, but in general, when the live event business and the idea of making your core income from paying spectators, when that started to become a very popular idea, that's also when they started building larger venues. Because, I mean... In, in those days, I mean, you would, you know, if you had a 5,000 seat arena, that that was pretty, that was pretty much the standard. And then you started getting bigger and bigger and bigger, 10,000, 20,000. And then, of course, you start seeing the football stadiums and things. I mean, that was really because of the turn towards, you know, our money is going to come from the ticket buying spectators, not just in wrestling, but in everything. Yeah. Yeah. It's been real interesting for me to, uh, learned about the evolution of Madison Square Garden. I'm not being a native New Yorker myself. I, I really I could never tell, Carl. You you fooled me. You tricked me. I thought yeah, you I were from New I York. Know, it's, it's maybe obvious. I have a kind of an accent. It's a small <laughs> one, but uh, I'm still being told. But uh, I I knew you know Madison Square Garden is the most famous arena in the world. Uh, I knew it as that, but I didn't know like its history and evolution. And you can literally see it. You know, going from Gilmore's Garden through the various different gardens that come after it get bigger and bigger and bigger. And, you know, now it's this, you know, even add on the felt forum and all this stuff. I mean, it just is a progression. Of course, you know, also that tracks with the population explosion in New York, but it also tracks the explosion of popularity of, of wrestling as well as, as a sport and how it became, you know, just, and now of course, you know, having shows in stadiums is not un uncommon and, and uh, yeah, it's uh, it's very interesting. I, the, the evolution of wrestling at Madison Square Garden has been. We all know the stories: Bruno San Martino and Bob Backlund, all these self superstar Graham, and all this. But man, to go back and track it all the way back to Andre Cristal, you know, the 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 first star of Madison Square Gilmore's Garden, and to see these different people that come along. It was fascinating to me to learn. I did not know this until I started doing that podcast series on the history of wrestling at Madison Square Garden. You know, Frank Gotch never won a match at Madison Square Garden. He has a zero win record there. And I thought, well, how strange, you know, he, he didn't <laughs> lose a lot of matches, you know, <laughs> very, very few. And he never won, never won a single one at Madison Square Garden. And uh, to see how that, that, uh, develops over the years and how it really kicks. I mean, you know, say what, say whatever you will about the McMahon family, but my goodness, you know, they mastered Madison square garden. I mean, they just literally mastered what, er whatever formula they were using, whatever era it worked. It's just like, they just knew that building. They knew that culture. They knew the, the ethnicity of the people that were going to come out. They knew exactly the buttons to push. And that's what I'm looking forward to that. I'm very much looking forward to that Gorilla Monsoon book you're, you're working on because I honestly like is gorillas before my time. I mean, I knew gorillas, a commentator and a new gorillas, you know, the later, you know, that, that working with Bobby Heenan, I'd saw the stuff, you know, a little bit of clips of his, his career, but I didn't really know the nuts and bolts of his career, but you know, he's, 
you know, he's a figure of that whole thing too. And I'm, I'm kind of excited to, to learn a little bit more about that because he's a guy that seemed to also really know what he was doing and really more plugged into the, the running of things. And I think most people realize. Yeah. He was a college educated guy at a time in the business when that definitely couldn't be taken for granted. And he stepped out from the pack. I mean, as being one of the, there were a lot of wrestlers in the inner circle of Vince McMahon senior, but he was the one honestly that had the most business savvy he was probably the most intelligent one. He was the most articulate one. He was the one that they trusted the most. That That's really what, and that's what I'm looking into confirms that for me. But there is something to what you said about the McMahons really did figure out Madison Square Garden. Because as you know, from looking at it, you know, Madison Square Garden wrestling had, I mean, it had the name recognition, which I think was largely mainly due to boxing, if we're being honest. I mean, boxing is really what elevated MSG into being the most famous arena in the world, and wrestling always would kind of like ride on the coattails of that. But but there were stretches of time where wrestling was dead or close to dead at the Garden, where the crowds were bad, where especially when they didn't have a really hot attraction, um, like like Rocka or – and I'm, I'm talking like pre-McMahons, like Rocka or, or Jim Londis, as, as a lot of people know. I mean, my – my grandfather, who grew up in the Depression in New York City, would always talk about Londas, always, especially when he saw that I was a wrestling fan. He would bring it up. He wasn't a huge wrestling fan. He was more he was a boxing fan, but everybody knew who Jim Londas was. So I grew up already knowing that, oh, this was this guy was a very big deal, especially in New York, not just in New York, but a very big deal in New York back in the 30s like i knew that even as a child like he was like in my mind he was like wrestling's equivalent of babe ruth you know a very similar kind of close era and he was this huge draw but outside of some of those times there would be periods where man they couldn't draw flies at the garden for years yeah there were times i mean it didn't even exist at madison square garden there were huge stretches of time the 40s yeah yeah well you didn't even have wrestling there at all interesting you bring up uh, Londos. If if there were any, if the question were posed, what, who is the greatest wrestler nobody talks about anymore? It's Jim Londos. I mean, yeah. he, if you, if you literally, if you actually crunch the numbers and actually look at gate attendances worldwide, not just Madison Square Garden, this guy drew 200,000, how, uh, 100,000 people not dollars, people, houses in Greece, 100,000 people. I mean, you, you don't do those numbers these days. Very right. seldom has, has 100,000 been hit. He did it at least twice. Um, he's, you never hear anybody talk about him, yet for all metrics being the same, you know, increase for inflation and stuff, he's easily top three. I don't know that he's not number one greatest draw of all time. He's you know, you think of, oh, he's not, he was never what Hulk Hogan or Steve Austin was or, or whatever he was, you know, per and for longer and for a longer yeah. period of time. That's the thing with Londos. Sorry, I keep interrupting you, Carl. I'm your typical New Yorker, unlike you, just a big mouth, constantly interrupting. No, I'm sorry. But <clears throat> the thing with Londos <clears throat> and actually Dave Meltzer has done good work in keeping Londos's name alive. I have to say um, among a couple of other people, because he will often mention how he was very possibly wrestling's 
biggest draw ever. And I think one of the one of the explanations he gives is the length of time. You know, you could draw basically almost through the entirety of the 30s and 40s. He's not just one of the biggest draws. He's the biggest draw in wrestling. You can't really say that about hardly anyone else. Like like Hogan was on fire. Yes, he was. He was the number one draw in wrestling for maybe 10 years. You know, certainly not 20. Steve Austin, you could make an argument, was the hottest draw in wrestling ever terms of ticket sales and merchandise and things but it was what three four years it was a very short time it was the thing that londa's had was the longevity that year after year you know and 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 his story is hilarious because if you read about it it's like he has these fallings out with promoters constantly promoters as people know wrestling promoters hate being beholden to talent they hate having to rely on talent for their money, they, they we see it today in the fact that WWE wants their brand to be bigger than any one wrestler. So it continually happens that they're always looking for a replacement for Jim Londis because they want somebody that they can control. That's how you get Dan O'Mahony and people like that, that they could manipulate. And they keep having to go back to Londis hat in hand and say, Jimmy, please, we can't draw anybody. Our houses are down can you come back? And he works out a deal. It just happens over and over again because it's like the business kept trying to move on from Londos, meaning the promoters wanted to, but they couldn't because nobody, nobody, there was nobody that fans wanted to see more. So they kept having to go back to him. It's an amazing story. Yeah, it really is. And and when you think about you know how popular he was and everything, and compare it to like you know Hulk Hogan. He had the benefit of television. He had the benefit of being ingrained in popular culture. He even you know, the mega success of the the Rocky Three movie, and then you know his other dabbling in TV, uh, you know, uh, Sports Illustrated. I mean, he's he's in the popular culture. The common person on the street knows who Hulk Hogan is, and same can be said for Steve Austin. Certainly, The Rock. I mean, he is a gigantic pop culture star. Jim Londos didn't have the benefit of TV or, or anything like that. He was a success. Uh, the, the papers, I mean, that was about it. But there was something about it. And I've often wondered, you know, we've often heard that term, the it factor or whatever, and nobody can really, you know, it's, it's some variable of charisma and something else, you know, just touching the 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 pulse of the, the, uh, the country at that point in time or something. I've often wondered, what was it about Jim Londos? I mean, he was kind of short. He was fine. Uh, you know, his, enough of his work survives on, on tape that we can kind of get an idea about what he was or something. But there was just a magnetism about him that just captured people's imagination. And I find it really interesting because I don't know, again, that you can quantify it. The, the wrestling promoters couldn't do it. You can't replicate it. You can't. They, that's what, well, I mean, not just wrestling, but sports people in general. I mean, how many times have you know, I'm sure a, a boxing promoter now would love to duplicate Mike Tyson or Muhammad Ali or whatever and get boxing back to the popularity it used to have. And wrestling's done it forever. I don't know what that thing is, but Londo's definitely had it. Well, I know, I, I mean, from what I've been made to understand, one of the things that he did well and that he kind of introduced in wrestling is the idea of, well, first of all, you had the ethnic angle. You can't underestimate that. He was the first wrestler in in these immigrant centers 
that was being put forth as not just an attraction because you had ethnic attractions, but he was the guy, the top guy. So you had the Greeks coming out, but you also had the Italians coming out. You had different ethnic groups coming out because they saw like, wow, this guy is an immigrant. He's like one of us. He's not like your classic all-American pro wrestler or you know sports figure that we've gotten fed up till now he's not frank gotch like frank gotch is the epitome of that you know this is something different i think that was a big part of it i because i think too the switch in wrestling is once they started realizing that we can't sell this to the public as a legitimate contest anymore we can't bring them in in that way because a lot of people now realize it's staged now we have to think of a different way to bring people in so we're going to go after the immigrant populations who may not be clued in as much to all this kind of thing. That was part of it. And I also think at least I could be wrong on this, but my understanding is that he invented a lot of the stuff that we think of now in terms of, of baby face style of working, like doing a comeback and like taking a beating, like, like almost like hulking up like that kind of thing, or like the, the thing that, that Bruno would do or, or chief Jay Strongbow would do, or it's, or Jerry Lawler would do, or it's like, I've taken all that I could take and the strap is down and I'm going to make my big comeback. Like that was Londis. I, I think he was one of the first guys to do that. So, you know, to an audience back then, that would have seemed like a very new and exciting concept, almost like turning a wrestling match into a drama, you know? And I think he played a part of that. Yeah, and I and he's absolutely one of the innovators in that. There, there have been so many people uh, dating all the way back to the pioneer era who have like wrestling just lends itself to theater. I mean, it just does. I mean, and it started way back as far as William Muldoon, eighteen fifty. I mean, he William Muldoon dabbled in theater as well. I mean, he was he appeared in plays and everything else. And so, I mean, even the costuming as far back as wrestling goes, I mean, was based on the circuses and acrobats and things of that, that nature to, to get people's attention. There was always a, a, a flair to it, a theatric to it. And as you move forward, Strangler Lewis kind of made one of the bigger jumps as far as the presentation of it. As you talked about with Lundos, you have the, uh, the, the, you know, you got the good looking, guy against the the ugly monster you know that that kind of starts getting and that's become a trope of of wrestling ever ever since you know you have like you mentioned jerry lawler i mean good grief his whole career was <laughs> right. what monster am i gonna kill this week you know so right. uh all these little elements keep coming together and in that uh i meant i alluded to earlier that i'm presently in the midst of a ongoing podcast series about the pioneers of wrestling and one of the things I say is how did it become two, you know, two guys on the prairie just scuffling in the dirt for a little bit of money, see who wins, who beats the other one. How did it come become entertainment style wrestling we have now worldwide, world over? And it's those little ingredients. Everybody keeps coming along to this pot of stew and adding their own ingredient that made it what it is today. And you know, obviously, of the the modern era, the biggest contributor to that was Vince McMahon. I mean, how many how many innovations did uh, did he do? You know, love him or hate him, like like WWE or or don't like it. The fact is, you know, it became a 
billion dollar success uh, of its own accord through some of the innovations and stoking of these ideas. And, and he stoked the more entertainment oriented aspects. One of the things that I personally really, I was always like team NWA. I, I, oh, I like my, my, I like it more serious. Come on now, <laughs> this silly clown stuff. Come on. But when WCW, which was the, you know, the, the grew out of the old Jim Crockett promotion, it was the remnants of what had been NWA, although what it resembled at the end bore little to before it still yeah. was that, that was the lineage. And so when it died or was, it was bought by WWE, it, it kind of like that broke my, broke my lineage of, of what I really liked. And so I'd always liked WWF. I, I enjoyed it, but it wasn't my favorite thing. And, but then even from that point, now we're talking, we're looking back and gosh, it's hard to believe that's 23 years ago. Now uh, it changed even then. Now, now the guy whose preferable presentation is the more entertainment oriented, the more theatrical oriented, we're not even pretending this stuff's real. Come on now. Uh, really leans heavily into that. And that's becomes what has, has, is, in today's world is now even even the competitor company now AEW still in their presentation and I and I, I use this terminology and I don't I don't mean it it's going to be taken as disrespectful and it's going to be taken as a as a knock but I don't mean it that way at all I, I call sort of that style rest video game style rest because it is presented more fast paced. Uh, more high spot moves, more acrobatic. And look, I like stuff like that. I, I'm a huge fan of Lucha Libre. It's one of my favorite things. And it's all about flip-flopping and flying, colorful costumes. So that's my preferred thing. But I am saying that it is a difference. It, it is a difference. And some people don't like that difference. To other people, it, it appeals. And to, to some people, it doesn't. But I just find it fascinating, regardless of what style or, or what company you ultimately become a fan of, to me, it's the process. It's the, it's the how did it get to be this thing? Right. And I, that's what I enjoy about it. I'm more of a fan of the history of wrestling, not just old stuff, but how did the transition occur than I am of just sitting down and watching, you know, whatever Raw is this week. Yeah, and it's wild how things can be lost if they're not preserved. Like, um, you know, one of the things relating to what you're talking about is how so much of wrestling today even outside WWE down to the Indies is influenced by WWE because they kind of swallowed up everything. They, they, they erased or they've tried really damn hard <laughs> to erase the histories of a lot of wrestling promotions to the point where like, you know, back in the, when I was a kid, at least as a fan and WWF was taken over, there was still a lot of influence of the other wrestling that had existed. And, the wrestlers even in the business who remembered it and that kind of thing. Now it's like everything is very much uh, colored by the WWE um, attitude of what wrestling is or how it should be presented. And, and, you know, it's wild to me as a historian, looking back, how easy it is for things to be forgotten. Like for example, um, I ran into, because we mentioned Joe Stecker before I found a wrestling magazine in my collection 
that's about 50 years old. It's a magazine from the 70s. And it asked the question, this is a cover line on the magazine. It asked the question, uh, was Joe Stecker possibly the greatest of all time? And there's a story on the inside, a retrospective of Joe Stecker. That's and This is about 40, 50 years after his prime in the business, right? After he had been a champion. Now, you fast forward 50 years later, right? And you went from the question... Could Joe Stecker be the greatest of all time to 50 years later now, the question of most 99.99% of fans would be, who is Joe Stecker now? Exactly. That is a huge shift, and it's very humbling to think of. I remember I found a book um, at the New York Public Library. I would not have known this otherwise. Um, I knew of the name of H.M. Dufour. H.M. Dufour a wrestler of the pioneer era, 1860s, 1870s. I knew the name from seeing the name on title histories. That was about it. Henry Moses Dufer, yes. Yes. I knew you would know that. I knew you would get the reference. It's the first time I've mentioned Henry Moses Dufer on this show. But the thing that killed me was reading this book was, because this was a very old book, was that he had at one point been the biggest star in pro wrestling, the biggest star in professional wrestling, the number one star for a long time in that era coming out of the Civil War. And now here we are, even I, the a huge wrestling nerd who obsesses over this stuff, had no idea other than just a rare, you know, a, a kind of fleeting memory of a name I had seen on a title history. Had no idea until I looked into this that this guy was a massive, huge deal, but it just goes to show you what can happen. And I know we have video footage now, which helps, but it can still happen. Yeah. H.M. Dufer, in fact, had a whole style of wrestling changed its name because of him. We, we, even to, even to this day, uh, you turn on pro wrestling in 2023 and what's the first move in most matches it's collar and elbow hook up in the middle of the ring. That's where you fill people out, what, hook up collar and elbow. Well, collar and elbow was a style of wrestling in the 1800s. And H.M. Dufour was such, he was so good and dominant at it that that style of wrestling became known as Dufour Rule Mac Wrestling. That was what collar and elbow became known for many decades, Dufour Rules. And so, I mean, you know, uh, nowadays we don't call you know modern entertainment wrestling Hogan rules or you know, Austin rules wrestling. No, but the, 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 it, he was so he was so dominant that yes, collar and elbow wrestling was known for a long time as do for rules wrestling. And there you're talking about somebody who's wrestling in a time when you know I'm I'm there couldn't have been any many if any major kind of sporting venues. I mean, it was the beginning of really what we think of as American sports and professional sports, baseballs being formed around the same time. And, you know, boxing is still just complete barbarism at this time <laughs> and, you know, banned in most places. So I, I, it's hard to even think about what it looked like in those. It had to be in those days, I guess, in, in bar rooms or in sometimes it would, you'd have matches taking place at railroad stations and things and just out in fields uh, you know, people would just accumulate to watch. And, uh, you know, this is the beginning of the era of national media celebrities and things like that. And 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 wrestlers are right there as part of that. Yeah, well, it, but uh, it's interesting you brought it up. I'm glad you did, because 
that's also an ingredient in how so much entertainment and theater got mixed into wrestling because you're right. You go back to the uh, pre-Civil War era, the days of Abraham. And Abraham Lincoln was legitimately a wrestler. He really did work with a troop. We have at least two documented matches he had. He lost both of them, by the way. And, you know, they... His most famous match, the one everybody knows that you probably saw the, the painting of him with a guy held over his head about to slam him to the ground. Well, you know, that's obviously theatrics, but it was two guys at the local general store. The general store owner's like, yeah, our town wrestling champion, Jack Armstrong, he can whoop this here Lincoln boy. And uh, he's like, well, I bet he can't. So I bet you, you know, five American dollars, he can't do it. And so call old Lincoln over and out front of the store, just, you know, in the back lot or something, they have themselves a, a wrestling match and everybody's betting on it. And so it starts out just stuff like that. And then as wrestling grew in popularity and it really exploded in popularity through the civil war, because you got all these encampment encampments of different people. They're not always fighting battles. Most of the time they're traveling. They're going camp to camp to camp down the road. So they have a lot of time and what are they doing to pass the time? Well, they're uh, having sports. They're, you know, doing different things. They're playing cards. They're fighting, wrestling, betting on it. And uh, you have then all these influences, all these different, you know, America is a country of Im immigrants at that time. So they're like, well, in my country, we have these Cornish rules, and this is how you wrestle. And we have this uh, pioneer sauce, catch as catch can. We have this, and it all melds together into this thing. And have these different rules. And most of the time back in the 1800s, you have these different rules. Like you, you would have one match, but nowadays when you think best of three falls, well, that means, you know, whoever wins two of the three falls to win. Well, back then it would be like, you'd have one style, one fall would be catch as catch can. One would be collar and elbow. One might be like Cornish style or something like that. And uh, so it, it then evolves from that to you go with the circuses, obviously go town to town. You didn't have TV back then. <clears throat> didn't even have radio. What do people do for entertainment? Well, they went down to the town square. There'd be a band playing, you know, you go down the town square. There'd be some sort of play being put on It'd be a wrestling match put on, you know, bet on that. And so that's, that evolves then as one of the first, building structural buildings that began being built around the country were opera houses and theaters to put on plays and Shakespeare and vaudeville and things like that. And so, yeah, let's, we got a stage, we got two wrestlers, sell some tickets and have us a good old match. And it, when you put then wrestlers in a place of entertainment, vaudeville and uh and uh shakespearean acting and stuff well you're around people that are wearing costumes you're around people who are actors you're around people who are you know in entertainment and that sort of bleeds over well we can spice this up a little bit you know here comes a wrestler now and he's you know instead of just uh you know black trunks and black ties he's wearing red ones Ooh, you know what What's his story? This is this is strange. This is a strange thing, but now you know him. You remember this guy. And, uh, you know, it just it slowly evolves from that because wrestling did uh, some of its earliest presentations, especially headed toward those late 1800s, early 1900 periods, were often presented in places like uh, opera houses and theaters and because that was your first uh, venues in, in different places. Uh, right. And it was an easy sport. If we call it that it was an easy sport to organize compared to other sports. You didn't need 
you know, it, it's two guys. It's it's, you know, in fact, I think in the in the earliest years, the ring wasn't even like what we think of it now. You know, it was just sort of like an elevated platform. And then people started falling off of it so often that somebody thought, hey, we should have ropes. You know, the, the ropes were there originally not to bounce off of, but to prevent people from falling out of the ring because guys were actually getting seriously hurt falling Absolutely. off the platforms. Well, it, it became a spot. Frank, right. One of Frank Gotch's go-to spots was the orchestra, orchestra, orchestra pit fall. Okay, he would get thrown through the ropes or off the stage and and you know you sometimes you would even have an orchestra playing there you'd have them playing during the match before the match after the match you know as part of the overall entertainment then the uh, comedy skit would come out and they would it would be incorporated in this other stuff well frank god should just tumble right out into that. that's memorable right i mean here he's knocking over the trombonist and everything else and and uh you remember oh wow that's spectacular it's a high spot Yep. Frank Gotch loved it. He, he used to go to the orchestra pit fall all the time. <laughs> and I think that's even that was involved in how he lost his American title to, to Fred Beal, which is like one of the most it's got to be one of the biggest upsets in wrestling history where you got this guy, Fred Beal, who, you know, beats God. <laughs> right. No, but right. Exactly. <laughs> it's it's where when you look at it, right. But like, we can't see these matches. There's no way to see it, but it's where you look at the description, right? You read about it, you read newspaper accounts and you go, Oh my God, that's a work. I get it. Where it's like, gotch fell out. I think he would, he fell out of the ring. He hit his head on the ring post. He couldn't continue. Yep. They gave the belt exactly. to Beal, and then Gotch just destroyed him like a week later and got it back. You know, you, clearly you can see their work. They're working an angle. This is wild. You know, you could you could connect the dots in your head even without seeing it. And now Fred Beal has a move named after him to this day that people yeah. don't even know who, where it comes from. <laughs> Absolutely, it's interesting that uh, the newspapers did sketches of the match, and they have this. The draw, you know, Frank Gotch is like drawn like this big giant gorilla, and they've got like Bill drawn as this little tiny like stick man almost. And so, you know, they're clearly trying to convey, come on now, you know, this this is a little sketchy here. But uh, Cedric, do you, do you do you know the uh, the outcome of Fred Bill? Do you know how how the rest of his story? Well, I actually found out about it because I've, you know, I, I've been involved with the International Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame, the new one that they started in Albany a couple of years ago, and they inducted Beal last year, and we had a guy from Fred Beal's hometown who wow, came. Wonderful. Yeah, he he accepted it because it's a small town, and so you know, even though the public at large may have forgotten Fred Beal in that town, he is still remembered because he's a major mm -hmm. historical figure. And so, yeah, the idea was, I guess, he became a cop after wrestling, or maybe he already was a cop, and he was killed, right? He was killed in the line of duty. There was like a, yeah, a burglary, yeah. a factory break-in or something that he that they busted, and the burglars killed him. And I think to this day, because I remember I, the guy that came to induct him was a member of the police force in that town today. And I think he told me that to this day, Fred Beal is the only police officer that was ever killed in the line of duty in that town. So he's very well remembered. There's plaques and all this kind of stuff. So, yeah, I I, I was actually aware of that. Wow, you you get an A plus in your history lesson here. <laughs> well, if you had caught me a year ago, I wouldn't have known this. I, I wouldn't have known any of this. But now yeah, that, I think that's I know as of, you know, 
several years ago that was true. He was last. I, I, you may or may not know this. I'm actually a police officer myself. I retired this year. I have 31 years in the police force as well. And so that story obviously stuck out to me that, uh, you know, well, that was very interesting because, yeah, he responds to a burglary call at a factory and uh, gets out with his flashlight and is just gunned down uh, yeah. right there. At. Yeah. And, and um, the next time you see the bill throw, you remember. <laughs> that's right. I, I remember I remember as a kid, this is something I remember. Um, somebody used a bill in a match that Jr. was calling. And this was back when he was in WCW. And in those days, you know, this is before like the kind of screaming and yelling and cursing Jr. This is when he was more kind of like, I'm going to tell you everybody's football background. And I'm going to, it was a very sports like announcer. And he actually got it wrong, which was a rare thing for wow. Jim Ross. Uh, he, he, he got the name wrong. He knew that it was named after somebody named Beal, but he called him something else. Not Fred <laughs> Beal. I think he said like, that's the move uh, invented by Jack Beal or something like that. And I think he was calling it with Jesse Ventura, if I'm remembering this right. And Jesse Ventura was just blown away that he even knew that at all. Like, how do you know these things, Ross? You know, but but it, it was it was this cool moment where they actually referenced Fred Beal on a WCW broadcast. Amazing. I'm a giant Jesse Ventura fan. He is just the most absurd human being in the world. And <laughs> thus, thus also the most entertaining. I mean, I, I just, uh, Jesse just, is, I've been on a big Jesse Ventura kick here lately. He's just, uh, he's really something else. His, his commentary was so, listening back now to it, it's like, Holy moly, he was so inside baseball that <laughs> you yeah. didn't really realize he was so great. Well, he would make <laughs> in jokes that, you know, were just for him and, you know, Vince or whoever he was working with. Like, I would love how he would just just tear into Vince and more than any of the other heel announcers did. And you could just tell he's doing it because he knows he can get away with it because he's the heel announcer. But he is just loving the fact that he can just ridicule his boss like this and he would do stuff like that with he would always make a point to uh, he to was crit- always right that was the thing right he was really that's it baby face really and truly he was it was great now he's off living in who knows where with i don't know off the grid or something i don't know he's right. he's a fascinatingly wacky individual i mean he is everything you would expect from entertainment pro wrestling world i mean it's just <laughs> the last i heard from him was when when superstar billy graham died at the funeral in arizona he actually sent in a video tribute that they played and he's it's from wherever he's living now i think he's like in i don't know what the heck it is it's like somewhere baja, in, california yeah, oh baja. right i'm in the baja right that will sasso thing exactly, right he's yeah. right that's where he's living now but he's like sitting on the beach and he did this whole video tribute to graham so he's still he's still out there i if he's listening to this i really have tried to get him for the gorilla book i want to let people know that when this book comes out and he's not interviewed in it you will understand I tried my very best. I did not let you down, dear readers. I'm still trying. I am getting nowhere. I just get the idea that he doesn't really do stuff like that. I I know that he has my information because I've gotten it to him through third parties that are very close to him. Was it carrier pigeons? Did you send carrier? Because that may be how you need to do it. 
Maybe, maybe that's what it is. I need to send a little canoe down to the Baja, somebody down there, like a almost like a heart of darkness thing where it's like where he's he's Colonel Kurtz, you know, he kind of looks like him now. And somebody's got to deliver this message to him for me. I don't know. But I don't think it's going to happen. I'm very sad to say I would love to have interviewed Jesse for the Gorilla Monsoon book, but uh, maybe you should interview Will Sasso and just. <laughs> As Jesse, oh man, that would don't don't put that idea in my head. That would be that would be great. No, but uh, he he was high on the list, but eh, not meant to be. But um, so what we've been talking a lot about the projects and things that you do, and I want to uh, just give you some time here before we run out of time. I want to talk a little bit about those websites and things and where people can find your stuff because I also want to say that you know i love the pioneer series that you're doing on the you know i found it through the observer website i know it's also through your site but for for people that subscribe to the wrestling observer and figure four weekly online you can find these podcasts they're there the pioneer series you're doing the history of wrestling at madison square garden which is meticulous like week by week absolutely fascinating thing if that's your thing find it but there's also your website when it was cool which is a lot more this is also why i was interested too because you you cover you're like me you're interested in popular culture from earlier eras in general wrestling is just part of that but it's movies it's television it's just general nostalgia and i'm the same way i almost feel like we should do a second show where we just mm -hmm. talk about old movies and television and fads and things like that. Godzilla. Yes. Well, <laughs> right. I mean, it's a dead giveaway. And, and my, my latest book on superheroes, which is the whole history of comics and superheroes and going back to pulp novels and things. So yeah, that is, that is like the sweet spot for me. So how can people find all this stuff? Yeah, how did you not create when it was cool like that? That like right. your body, yeah. That you know, <laughs> I stole your idea, I suppose. But yes, yes, uh, I've been with Observer longer than Dave Meltzer has. I'm not Observer, but the Figure Four uh, online. I, I, Brian brought me in uh, first in the Dragon King stuff uh, early on, and then Dave uh, come along, and that of course you know really just blew up everything now you've got dave Meltzer and, and brian alvarez together in one website and i was fortunate enough to grift off their <laughs> their their popularity for many 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 years but uh no i do the history the history podcast over there I do history work over at observer and figure four online and i have a, a two weekly podcasts there i have uh the uh the Dragon King Carl um, classic wrestling podcast shows where you talked about the Madison Square Garden series. That's one we're doing among others. Also do a show called a Dragon King Dark, which is more Jesse Ventura would like that show. It's a more esoteric type stuff. Do it uh, once a week as well. But then er everything, all the above is, is housed at my website when it was cool.com. And we have currently, uh, for Patreon supporters over there, we have currently over 2,000 shows in our archive. And what's great, and this is the thing I figured out a long time ago, by doing retro pop culture and retro wrestling, your shows are always evergreen, okay? Uh, you know, uh, Jim Lundos ain't doing nothing new. 
So we can talk about him a year ago and it's still relevant. So uh, all that content's still fresh. And, and, and if you're interested in wrestling history, I mean, that's, that's the primary thing I do is pro wrestling history. And I dig as deep into it as I can. If you want just the Wikipedia article, go we, read Wikipedia. You know, uh, if you want to know everything, you know, we want to know not just who he wrestled, but why he done it and what all was involved. And then that's what I do. Uh, nerd. I'm a giant nerd and I don't care to say that. And, uh, and I hope many of you are too. And if you find that stuff interesting, uh, by all means, please check us out over at when it was cool.com. We have a, we do a podcast of some sort almost every single day at our site. So it's right there on the front page and I highly encourage everybody to check it out. And I really do appreciate it uh, too. I appreciate Dave and uh, Brian for having me at observer for all these years. I'm eternally grateful and uh, don't think for a minute that I don't understand it's, you know, I'm lucky to be there and I'm glad to be there. And uh, Brian, I'm super, uh, super honored to be here. I mean, especially somebody whose work I've read a, a lot of. It's, it's an honor to be here. And, and uh, I've, I really have often, I've, I've talked to Brian last a few times over the years, and I'm just a huge He's doing a lot to preserve wrestling history through the Arcadian Vanguard. Uh, network he's a lot and I, I appreciate that and thank you i'm honored to be here well it's my pleasure and and that's one of the reasons i gravitated towards arcadian vanguard because i was impressed with the history stuff that they do and you know where i was happy to have my show be a part of that platform but you know uh, you're right when you say your website when it was cool like that i'll go to that site and i have had that thought of like wow i should have done this myself you know, because I <laughs> I have just to make sure show you how we're on the same wavelength. My column in Pro Wrestling Illustrated is called The Way It Was. And it's a retro mm -hmm. column about wrestling history. So you've got when it was cool, I've got the way mm -hmm. it was. We both agree that things used to be way much cooler in the past, apparently, but we love to talk about it. Most and, right. And I'm 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 just glad to have somebody like you on the show to be able to exercise these parts of my brain that I don't always get to do on every episode. So I, I thank you for allowing me to do that. It's been a lot of fun. Well, when you, when you do release your next book or, or project or whatever, please send me a press release and we'll be glad to run that for you because that's right up our alley of what we do. And awesome. I'll be glad to put it in there. All right. Thank you. There you have it, folks, my conversation with Carl Stern, and I do not think that that interview disappointed, and I hope that you agree with me. That was exactly what I said it was going to be. A lot of great conversation there, a lot of fascinating history. I love bringing guests like Carl onto this show. Thank you, Carl. And as you know, I'm always working on bringing great guests to this show. Next week for episode 83, I am going to have Kenny McIntosh, who's the man behind the Inside the Ropes franchise, including the magazine that I write for, but also the live events and touring events that take place. An interesting guy, and I'm going to bring you that conversation next week. I've also got other great guests coming up on the way, including Megan Baker Kelly, the daughter of Ox Baker. In addition to people like Scott Cornish from the 605 Super Podcast, humorist, super fan, wonderful, amazing guy, he'll be coming to the show, and many others that I continue to work on to bring to you and keep these conversations going. 
So I hope you keep listening to the show. You can find us on our website, suawpod.com. You can also find us wherever you find your podcasts. Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Podcast Addict. You name it, you can find it there. Every single one of the 82 episodes. Go there, subscribe, you know what to do. Join the Facebook group, as I mentioned earlier in the show. Shut Up and Wrestle with Brian R. Solomon. It's a great place to find extra content related to the show and its episodes. So please do join us there. We're all having a lot of fun. If you want to have fun with us, join the group. As far as other projects that I work on, first and foremost, The Wrestling News. TheWrestlingNews.com from Arcadian Vanguard. Listen to it every morning at the website or wherever you find your podcasts, or you can find it on the Arcadian Vanguard YouTube page. I know a lot of people do find it there. The books that I have written, superheroes that I mentioned at the top of the show, as well as Blood and Fire, are available, if you don't want the signed copies, of course. They're available on Amazon, and you could even get uh, the digital form of those books, as well as, in the case of Blood and Fire, you can get the audio version as well, narrated by me. The magazines that I write for, Pro Wrestling Illustrated, you can pick up copies at pwi-online.com, as well as Inside the Ropes magazine, which you can get at insidetheropesmagazine.com. If you're looking for me on social media, you can find me on Twitter or Instagram at Brian R. Solomon. You can find me on Facebook. My Facebook author page is Brian Solomon Writer. And on any of those social media platforms, you will find the link to my author website on the World Wide Web. Shut Up and Wrestle is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. And as always, this has been Brian R. Solomon asking you to keep those cards and letters coming in and saying... I don't care if it rains or freezes, long as I got my plastic Jesus sitting on the dashboard of my car. So long, wrestling fans. 